This is Craig Morris, and you're listening to the Potsdam Summer School Podcast. When people mention the Arctic, you have images of a remote and desolate place. There's no one except for a few Eskimos and uh, some researchers uh, and polar bears. That's Onur, a Dutch participant at the Potsdam Summer School. He sums up pretty well what comes to mind when we hear the word Arctic or even Antarctic for that matter. Nowhere is climate change happening faster than at the poles. But the commonality between the Arctic and the Antarctic should not lead us to overlook some major differences between the two. When he gives lectures on the Arctic and Antarctic, Volker Rachold of the German Arctic office starts off with an easy question. If polar bears are starving, why don't they just eat more penguins? Maybe you know the answer right off. Polar bears are in the north, Penguins are in the south. Folko stresses that the Arctic and Antarctic are literally polar opposites in many ways. We shouldn't just think of them as the two coldest places on Earth that otherwise have a lot in common. The first major difference, and that's a physical difference, is that the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land masses, by continents, and the Antarctic is a land mass or a continent surrounded by an ocean. And that makes a big difference because the Arctic Ocean, the ice in the Arctic Ocean is sea ice, apart from Greenland, of course. Uh, It's sea ice, uh, which is coming and going every year. I mean, there's sea ice also in summer, but it's much less than in winter. Whereas in the Antarctic, you have a permanent ice sheet and it's kilometers thick. So, and that is, of course, a big difference uh, in terms of the climate, in terms of all the natural conditions there. Um, But from a political point of view, of course, the big difference is that the Arctic, or most of the Arctic, except for the Central Arctic Ocean, is national territories. So there are eight countries that form the Arctic, and of course they have their national interests, and it's their right to have the national interests. Whereas in the Antarctic, you can consider the continent as kind of no man's land. So um, the Antarctic Treaty, governs the Antarctic, but it's, it's, a, it's a continent that is used for science, actually. And then the other difference, of course, and this is maybe the most important difference, is that there are people living in the Arctic, and there are no people except the scientists working there in the Antarctic, and the four million people, of course, they are also in the, in the center of interest. Mm-hmm. So one big difference between the Arctic and Antarctic is that people live in the Arctic while no one lives permanently in the Antarctic. That makes a lot of difference, of course. For instance, if everyone in the Antarctic is a scientist, then their goals are more or less commonly shared. But in the Arctic, different countries have different interests, and those interests can change over time, such as after elections. And of course, the interest also changes in the country. I mean, this is the same in Canada. So when, when the, the government changed in Canada, of course, the interest in the Arctic also changed dramatically. Okay. Okay. So, and that's the same in the US. And of course, it's not, it's not you, you couldn't say that one country has this interest in the Arctic region because mm. that simply has something to do with, with the government of right. the country. So, uh, and, and there are maybe it's not that dramatic changes in um, Nordic countries where mm. 
different parties are more or less along the same line. Right. But if you take, let's say, a change in the U.S. from Democratic to Republican mm. government, that's a difference, or it's mm. the same in Canada. So, and mm. I think that's, that's, that's maybe the story behind it. An organization called the Arctic Council brings together these countries for them to work out their differences. Obviously, Canada and Russia are members. They are the largest territories in the Arctic. But much of Greenland is also in the Arctic, so Denmark is also a member. So is the U.S., thanks to Alaska. Norway, Sweden, and Finland are also partly in the Arctic, though neither Sweden nor Finland have access to the water directly. Norway cuts them off. Finally, a tiny sliver of Iceland is in the Arctic, so it is the eighth member state of the Arctic Council. The Council also contains six organizations representing indigenous peoples, such as the Inuits of North America and the Sami of Northern Europe. Folke talked about how country priorities sometimes change after elections. Just days before the U.S. government left the Paris Climate Accord, U.S. State Secretary Tillerman signed the Fairbanks Declaration, which sets forth the principles of member state cooperation. It's unclear whether the U.S. will remain committed to this agreement under President Trump, but Folker's not worried. We talked about science diplomacy, and I think the, the polar regions are a very good example for science diplomacy, because the, uh, the research cooperation in the polar regions works, in my view, extremely well. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that also triggers, of course, a very good political relationship between the countries there. And the Arctic Council, um, despite many international, I would say, debates or discrepancies, uh, the Arctic Council uh, works very well politically, mm -hmm. and still does. And uh, all the, the Arctic countries are participating and they work on consensus base. Um, and they come to their decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a very good example of, of how, and this is science-driven at the end. Right? He used the term science diplomacy. I asked him to explain exactly what he meant by that. How to say scientific cooperation supports political cooperation or what the inter the connection between the two is, because it can also be the other way around, so that science is only made possible because there's better political cooperation. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you take the Arctic, where scientific cooperation International scientific cooperation could only start uh, after the political conditions changed, mm -hmm. uh, and in that case, the Soviet Union opened and made this possible. So maybe it's even a thing that you can take in both directions. Now, there is no Antarctic Council, but rather an Antarctic Treaty System, which has its own secretariat. Why don't we just have a polar council for both the Arctic and Antarctic? Well, remember, how different the two places are, Folke says there are good reasons for separate bodies. A major component of the science in the Arctic deals with uh, people, so with socioeconomics, with political legal issues, which are not really an issue in the Antarctic. So and from that point of view, that whole part is not really very relevant for the Antarctic. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is uh, that there are several countries, especially the South American countries, with little interest in the Arctic and strong interest in the Antarctic. So uh, at the moment, I ask, so for the Arctic has 23 member countries and SCAR for the Antarctic has more than 14. SCAR stands for the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, whereas I ask 
is the International Arctic Science Committee. So, and that's also a difference in the membership. Um, and then the other thing is also a difference in the political system, I think, so that the SCAR is very closely connected to the Antarctic Treaty, and IS is observer on the Arctic Council, and that is also a difference, I think, which explains why the two have never really seriously considered merging. Mm. So different countries are interested in the Arctic and the Antarctic, but the biggest difference is that four million people call the Arctic home whereas the Antarctic is home to no one. This difference also impacts science. In the Antarctic, research is purely about the natural sciences, not so in the Arctic, where social sciences are equally important. I asked Katrin Steffen, who has attended the Arctic Council as a German observer, to tell me about it. Katrin is a project leader at the IASS. So the Arctic Council is the core political forum for the Arctic. It's not an international organization, so it does not have legal personality. It cannot enact rules and regulations. It's an intergovernmental forum between the eight Arctic states. They make recommendations about environmental protection of the Arctic and sustainable development for the region. And they also include non-state actors, especially indigenous people's organizations, mm -hmm. in the form of permanent participants, which means they have to be consulted on all issues that are decided and debated in the Arctic Council. Katrin says the German government sends researchers like her to the Arctic Council to represent the country. Germany has an interest in being represented in the working groups um, in the, of the Arctic Council in form of experts, especially from research, because although we are just observers, um, we are actually asked to contribute to the work of the working group. So it makes more sense to send someone who is really in the, in the work um, about the Arctic in, in that research and not so much a bureaucrat from the government. So mm -hmm. that's why they send people like me. So what's it like at the council meetings? I mean, you've got two big, like Russia and the U.S. sitting in the room. How is Denmark and the small guys and indigenous populations, how do they, I mean, isn't this, I imagine it's pretty much the U.S. and Russia running the show, isn't it? <laughs> well, you would think so, because they are the two biggest states in the council, but actually it's very different. I mean. For one, in the council there is the, the so-called consensus principle. So if not everyone agrees about something, then nothing is decided. So everyone has to agree, especially of the eight Arctic states. And although the indigenous peoples, for example, don't have a vote, but I can tell from experience nothing is decided against their will or their, their opinion. So it's really much a very strongly consensus-driven organization. And because you only have eight states in the room and six indigenous people's organizations, you don't really want to, you know, pinpoint in someone being the outsider or like blaming someone. So it's so really much dependent on all the other ones to work with you in order to make the institution work and also really get things done for the regions. And that sense, really all the states, and, and I would even argue, while not on paper, but de facto also, especially in the indigenous peoples are on equal footing. Imagine that, an international, intergovernmental organization that works. So can we learn something about good governance from the Arctic Council? 
Well, if there's one lesson to learn from Arctic governance is that it's very, very complex and difficult and really not so easy that we can just say like, oh yeah, so let's have an Arctic treaty and then we have the whole region governed. There is a lot of governance there. There's definitely no anarchy in the Arctic, but it is messy and difficult, but it can also work. So there's a council for the Arctic, but not really any system of treaties. And there's treaties for the Antarctic, but not really a council. Katrin says that the treaty system for the Antarctic is stronger than the messy system for the Arctic, and the four million people living in the Arctic are the reason. They make everything complex. Why don't we have a treaty for the Antarctic where nobody lives and where people live we don't? Or is that the reason because there are people living there? I would actually say that's exactly the reason. It has to be much easier. All the states had really one goal. I mean, it's very much about the demilitarization of, of Antarctica, which, which was in the interest of everyone, really okay. a continent dedicated for research. And it also, because so many states had claims towards Antarctica and everyone thought, okay, we're just not getting to settle, let's freeze all those claims. We're not going to get rid of them, but we freeze them. So we said, you were not going to pursue them for as long as this treaty is enforced. And that's what was in everyone's interest. So in, in that sense, it was relatively easy to um, negotiate back in the 50s. Well, maybe that's a, a lesson as well, that we, if we just get rid of the people, everything gets a lot easier. <laughs> no, it is a good point, it is. It makes things harder, but of course also much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the big story about the Arctic these days is that the ice might melt and open up a new, shorter passage for ships between Europe and Northern Asia. Katrin says the idea is being overhyped. Because of the retreating sea ice, the idea is that there could be new shipping routes available through the Arctic that are shorter for some routes, especially between East Asia and Europe. But we will not see these routes being real competitors to established trade routes like the Suez and the Panama Canal. They will be important for increasing regional shipping activities, especially for oil and gas development in Russia. But when it comes to trade, that'll not be a big deal. The main reason is that these new ice-free routes will remain uncertain. Ice-free only means that the thickness of the ice has dropped below 15 centimeters, not that all of the ice is gone. There will also still be icebergs floating in the water, and the routes will still ice over in the winter. Companies will have trouble planning based on whether the ice has melted enough. Folker agrees that the opening of an allegedly ice-free Arctic for shipping is being oversold. I think during the last years there was a hype, particularly on transport and shipping in the Arctic. Uh, but if you look at what happened over the last years, that didn't come true. Because shipping in the Arctic is still difficult and still an issue. There is still sea ice uh, and it's still the service that you need for commercial shipping is still not there. We may not want this anyway. If the sea ice is gone all year round, it would be easier to extract any fossil fuel under the sea floor, which in turn would only worsen climate change. But let's move on to another basic question. Do icebergs have salt in them? Or more generally, does sea ice have salt in it? Take a second to think about it, and I'll be right back with the answer.
The answer is no. Sea ice is all fresh water. Bernhard Diekmann of the Alfred Wegener Institute explains that ice has a specific lattice structure. And they have a specific um, size mm -hmm. in the crystal chain. Mm -hmm. So, and the salt ions, they do not fit into the lattice of uh, ice. Bernhardt and his colleagues study the natural sciences at the poles. He told participants at the summer school about the polar amplification effect. That's when sea ice melts and the ocean becomes darker, thereby absorbing more heat, just like the hood of a dark car gets hotter than the hood of a white car in the sun. The dark blue of ocean water absorbs heat from the sun, whereas the ice would reflect it back. Bernhardt told the summer school participants about a project called Mosaic. That stands for the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of the Arctic Climate. Basically, it's a ship full of researchers that will let itself be iced in for an Arctic winter. In the summer of 2019, the mosaic ship Polarstern will replicate an experiment from more than a hundred years ago, a year-round expedition. Observation stations will be set up as far away as 50 kilometers from the ship. This expedition is important because the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the global average. There's a lot going on in the winter there, but we just really don't know what. In 1893, Norwegian adventurer Fridtjof Nansen wanted to be the first person at the North Pole. And to get there, he wanted to let his wooden ship be engulfed by ice and dragged to the North Pole. He abandoned his post during that winter, but we learned a lot about the Arctic based simply on where the ice ended up taking his ship. Bernhard explained why repeating this experiment 124 years later is so important. We have seasons in the Arctic. So the, uh, and the seasons are very strong. So we have a long uh, summer season with uh, daylight around the day. And we have the winter season with no light. Mm -hmm. So and most work we do, our, our most findings we have from the Arctic environments, these are findings from summertime. Mm -hmm. But what we do not observe is uh, when does the Arctic Ocean start to refreeze again? Mm -hmm. Theoretically, we can view all this from satellites, but the photos would be taken in the dark then. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, if we go directly with Polarstern, mm -hmm. we can observe it directly. So, uh, when we travel with Polarstern during winter time, we can also take some measurements from the central part of the Arctic Ocean during winter time. Okay. This is something which is otherwise not available. But this is six months of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you have found scientists willing to, to do this. <laughs> scientists are always willing to do this oh, yeah? crazy things. Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot yeah. of risk. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's okay. a lot of enthusiasm, okay. especially from the young scientists, postdocs okay. and PhD students. I can imagine that, yeah. Mm. Bernhard also said that if all the glacial ice on Earth melted, sea level would go up by 70 meters. That's 770. 
So there are two effects. One is uh, the melting of uh, glacial ice from the continents, Greenland or parts from Antarctica as well, and the expansion by warming of the water. Mm -hmm. So this also leads to a sea level rise. But it's important to remember that ice already in the water cannot raise sea level further by melting. Only ice on land can do that. So the, uh, what we observe today in Antarctica, these big icebergs, which are from the ice shelves, they are already in the water. Mm -hmm. So you can compare this with a glass of water and an ice cube in it. Mm -hmm. So the ice cube still is in the water and it melts, so nothing will change. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and that's the same for these ice shelves. But the problem is if the uh, grounded uh, ice masses on land, if they become uh, destabilized and go to the ocean, then the sea level will rise. More attention is being paid to both poles as a part of the year of polar prediction, which is happening right now, from mid-2017 to mid-2019. And if you're counting, yes, that's actually two years. The Year of Polar Prediction is an international research initiative that will help assure future safety in polar regions by providing reliable weather and environmental forecasts. Kirsten Werner of the Alfred Wegener Institute told me what was going on. Just briefly, so the core phase has been launched just now in May. Mm -hmm. So more weather balloons will be okay. deployed in order to um, measure the atmospheric conditions. And then we work together with the Polar Space Task Group um, in order to get satellite um, products into the forecast. Then there are many ships and aircraft um, getting data. Um, buoys will be deployed on the sea ice and in the ocean. Um, and this, all this data goes into the global telecommunication system of WMO. The WMO is the World Meteorological Organization. So from there, all the weather um, centers take their data to okay. make the forecast. Um, this sounds thing. like it will be useful if I want to um, predict when certain passages are open for shipping. Yeah, for example. Okay, so yeah. this has an economic uh, application. Yeah. Otherwise, if you wanted to go to the Antarctic, say, as a tourist. There are companies willing to take you to a research station for, say, $45,000, all-inclusive, for one week. So they bring you from Punta Arenas, I think, in Chile, and bring, bring you there to a camp uh -huh. somewhere close to the coast mm -hmm. of Antarctica, and then you're basically there a week and can explore different things. I don't know, they have a glacier there, you can hike up and things. And whenever the weather is well, they bring you to the South Pole. Okay. So they would monitor the weather for the whole week mm -hmm. and see, okay, now today is the day where we go. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also be interested in the manifesto of the Potsdam Summer School. You can view that document on the website potsdam-summer-school.org. The 2017 Potsdam Summer School was hosted by the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, the Alfred Wegener Institute, the German Research Center for Geosciences, 
the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the University of Potsdam in cooperation with the capital city of Potsdam. The music you are listening to is A Perceptible Shift by Andy Cohen, and the water you heard was recorded at the Dreisam River. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if so, tell your friends and share links to the show on social media. For now, this is Craig Morris, Senior Fellow at the IASS, signing off.